Wow, it got quiet, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, uh, first of all, thank y'all for coming and being willing to be guinea pigs. Uh, I, this, what we're going to do tonight is what uh, I've prepared to do at the, the Conference of Jungian Society of Scholarly Studies. Uh, sounds important, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I was late. I, I missed most of the video an announcing things Sunday, so I didn't see the announcement about this. But uh, Kent Marshall, who works at the front desk, uh, stopped me earlier this week coming in. He said, uh, I, d I didn't know that you were a, a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, yeah, and he started talking about PhD and stuff like that, and I was like, I said, I said well, what did you think I was? He said, oh, I always thought you was a, as a Boudreaux. <laughs> and so, and, and so this, this is, you know, we have, we have uh, vocations, and we have hobbies, and we have avocations, and I think that uh, this Young Studies work I've done has kind of grown into that, an avocation, an interest, um, and uh, the, the encouragement to, to take a paper I'd written for one of my classes and to offer it up came from a professor and she's the guilty one. Um, and so they, it's, uh, it is, the paper itself is to be uh, uh, published in Psychological Perspectives, uh, which is the Los Angeles Young Center's publication uh, in the wintertime. And then this presentation is at this conference that'll be um, at the end of June. And Melissa's gonna go with me to make sure I don't get in trouble. And then we're gonna bring uh, Aiden, uh, one of our grandsons, along to make sure she's entertained. And so they can, uh, they can uh, travel around Washington, D.C. and enjoy themselves, and, uh, and I would uh, let my head swim for about three days. Um, so so the, to, to share with you, if, if I were doing this presentation for uh, a group at the church, uh, I would never do it in the format I'm going to do it now. I would, uh, I would uh, first of all, I wouldn't do it in a lecture format. I've never done a lecture, a formal lecture before. I've done, and whenever I've been asked to make presentations, I've always found a way to make it uh, uh, a, a, a conversation piece, engage people and, and uh, so on. And even when we did the, the Young Studies uh, together uh, last January, I, I, I tried to do that uh, find different ways to involve people. So, so that, that's a, a preamble. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have a, you might say, a dry run with it is because I don't have any experience at this, and it seems a little um, uh, foreboding to just step in cold turkey, so to speak. Yes, sir? <laughs> you know, you know, I, that, that's, that's exactly what I would do if they didn't just say 20 minutes. I mean, you've read, you've read the paper. How did, yeah, I know, that's the problem. 
That, that would be a way to not have to prepare anything. Just tell a Boudreaux joke. Um, the, the, yeah, make sure it's a funny one. And uh, yeah, that's very kind of you, Tom. I, it's just, uh, the, the sheet of paper that I gave you, uh, I, I did have a, a section before I timed this thing that included some uh, definition of terms. And so that's on that sheet of paper. But I had to take it out because it was just more than 20 minutes. And, um, but I did include also quotes that come from uh, Melville and come from uh, Jung because this is, this is a different kind of language that, that, that they use. And, and I thought when I got to those parts in the lecture, it'd give you a little bit of a road map. It's easier to keep up with it when you have it visually in front of you. And, uh, and so that's why I included those. And you notice on the back there's one that says a bonus quote. Um, that, that's not part of the, of the lecture itself, but I thought in the conversation that follows, uh, that's another, I think, uh, incredibly symbolic expression that Melville offers us. And, uh, and if y'all are interested, we can take a look at it. Uh, so, so we're going to spend 20 minutes on this. I hope it's going to be 20 minutes uh, and not more than that. And then, uh, and then, and then uh, as, as, as I, uh, somebody said I needed to use uh, small words, well, I'm sorry, that's not this part. Afterwards, we can, we can talk and interpret and discuss and share as, as you want to. Okay, is that all copacetti? That's a Boudreaux word, by the way, copacetti. Uh, and that little piece was just a little lanyap for you. <laughs> Do what? Okay. I, 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 I suspect there's several timers going on here, but that's good. I asked Marty too. Martha is. Do you want to time me too? Okay. Okay. Well, with, uh, thank you for coming. And, uh, and we'll begin this now. Uh, and I begin with acknowledgement that I'm new at this. Um, I'm here because Susan Rowland encouraged me to come and to participate. Uh, I asked for her suggestions in preparation. And besides the, the urgency to stay on time, she said uh, 18 minutes is better than 20. Uh, she thought I should begin the preparation of this presentation with what I'm saying that is new to Jungian thinking. Uh, knowing what is new to Jungian thought is a challenge to me because I am so new to it myself. In fact, what I bring to the conversation is a combination of what I would call fresh eyes with experienced eyes. Uh, my perspective of Jungian thought is fresh in the sense that my exposure to Jungian psychology is measured in years, not in decades. However, these eyes have 60 plus years of life perspective and a life career steeped in theology and pastoral ministry, both of which live in a primary world of mythology and symbols. It's after I retired from Methodist ministry at age 60 that I wandered into the Jung Center in Houston began taking various seminars and courses, 
and ultimately launched into the Union Studies program of Saybrook University. These are my fresh eyes for the conversation, and these are my experienced eyes. At about the halfway point of the Union Studies program, we were assigned volume 15 of the collected works, The Spirit in Man, Art, and Literature. Volume 15 is a collection of C.G. Jung's essays and lectures devoted to his particular insights regarding the psychological impulse in the artistic process. Using Melville's novel, Moby Dick, as source material, this presentation explores basic psychic dynamics involved in the process of artistic expression. In exploring the role of psychic content for artistic expression, Jung distinguishes between art as psychological and art that is visionary, or as the editors of the collected work, collected work suggests, personalistic and visionary. In the former of these, the psychological or the personalistic, Jung recognizes that an author, and I quote, it's on your sheet, works with materials drawn from man's conscious life, with crucial experiences, powerful emotions, suffering, passion, the stuff of human fate in general. All this is assimilated by the psyche of the poet, raised from the commonplace to the level of poetic experience, and expressed with a power of conviction that gives us a greater depth of human insight by making us vividly aware of those everyday happenings which we tend to evade or to overlook because we perceive them only dully or with a feeling of discomfort. The raw material of this kind of creation is derived from the contents of man's consciousness, from his eternally repeated joys and sorrows, but clarified and transfigured by the poet. There is no work left for the psychologist to do. Now the vast majority of, within, of the material within Moby Dick lends itself to being identified as psychological or personalistic expression of literature. An unspoken purpose of Melville, I think, is to preserve a picture of the life of whaling itself in its multifaceted forms. Through his novel, you learn about the chase, the catch, and the harvest of the whale. You learn about the struggles of whaling life, the relationships, the boredom, the travels, the travails, the dangers. You become privy to the technical knowledge of the ship, I promise you, more than you ever wanted. Its sails, its crews, its routines, as well as types of whales, whale anatomy, and so on, and so on, and so on. With much of the novel, while much of the novel would be for Jung a psychological or personalistic type, throughout the novel resides the underlying element of a visionary work. Visionary in the Jungian sense that, quote, what happens in the vision is the imagery of the collective unconscious. In Moby Dick, the visionary aspect is expressed predominantly through archetypal characters. In his book, Moby Dick, an American Nikea, Edward Edinger explores many of these characters. In our time together, however, we will focus on Melville's use of symbolic imagery 
as a visionary form of literature. Uh, please allow me to digress for a moment. I began by recognizing my fresh eyes with regard to Jungian psychology. Shortly after I retired, I decided to read Melville's Moby Dick for the first time. The decision itself was not reasoned, but intuitive. Reading Moby Dick had never been part of a plan or a desire or a personal expectation. It had not come as a suggestion from anyone else. It simply occurred as a spontaneous thought. I think I'll read Moby Dick. It, was, it is only in retrospect that I raised for myself the question of how and why this decision could have been an act of guidance on the part of the self. The self being a union concept we will be looking at together. There's one part of Melville's novel that especially spoke to me. It spoke to me at the time in a numinous way, full of meaning and full of energy. It is why when four years later, in reading Jung's thoughts on literature, this connection was revivified. That prior connection was a primal experience that gave life to Jungian concepts and took them beyond the abstract and ra rational and into the visceral. A great, Jungian says, a great work of art is like a dream. For all its apparent obviousness, it does not explain itself and is always ambiguous. In this sentence, Jung is using the remembrance of the experience of a dream condition as an image for how a great work of art can function symbolically. By coincidence, there is a scene in Melville's novel, novel that is very dreamlike, laden with symbolic expression. The scene which had a great impact on me in my first reading of the novel. Melville set the stage for the scene by observing what could only be defined as intelligent behavior. The whales had begun grouping in larger herds for protection to make them seem scarce and to make whales difficult to locate. Upon discovering such a herd, the whalers are excited with the chase of such a large number of whales and following them through a strait. The whale boats embark and the scene is set. We beheld the tumults of the outer concentric circle, Melville writes. Having launched a harpoon, been towed through the vast herd of whales swimming in circles, and had the whales shake loose from the harpoon, the whalers find themselves locked in in the center of the herd. This area of the sea is described as a sleek where in contrast to the commotion of the circling whales beyond, the sea surface is calm and serene. It is the sort of image Jung identifies as a symbolic expression of the self archetype. Jung envisions the self as both center and circumference of the psyche. Not unlike Melville's mandala-like portrayal of whales circling around a calm, serene center. Circumference conveys the whole of the psyche. The geometry of circumference is vivified by Melville's dynamic of movement generating a tumultuous realm of whales. The image is further strengthened by portraying the bands of whales as concentric circles. Again, the geometry embraces Jung's concept of self as circumference 
by adding depth and dynamism to the image. The layers of concentric circles express a complexity to the psyche in its completeness. The all-encompassing quality of circumference, all that lies within, is reinforced by the notion of depth and complexity that concentric circles of a moving herd of whales suggest. In short, Jung perceives the self as circumference, as embracing the wholeness of the psyche in its complexity, conscious and unconscious, rational and irrational, the juxtaposition of opposites, some in the conscious realm, some in the unconscious, the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. The beauty of this image, however, rests within the contrast between the commotion of the circumference and the calm of the center. This dreamlike experience uh, the protagonist Ishmael describes further manifests Jung's concept of self as archetype. That which is the center of the psyche radiates out as an influencing factor on the whole of the psyche. It is also the case that Ishmael can only perceive the whole from the perspective of the center. Somehow Ishmael, which by the way the Hebrew means God hears or God sees, somehow Ishmael now is in a place of observance. He can see the whole of this majestic sight. Melville's image has an ambiguity indicative of self beyond the personal, something that is cosmic. In his book, A Guided Tour of the Collective Works of C.G. Young, Robert Hopke takes, a, takes note of a convention that has arisen in post-Jungian scholarship. The use of the lowercase s and the capitalized S in relation to the word self. On page 96 he writes, the capitalization of self in its archetypal denotation is as much for the clarity of terminology as for psychological reasons. Since the self, capital S, is just that in Jung's view, the archetype of a superordinate organizing principle of psychic selfhood. The implication for viewing Jung's concept of self, little s, through the lens of Melville's image is the cosmic prospect that the purposefulness and meaning of the human venture may be conveyed through this self, capital S, at the center, guiding and directing and molding the little s self toward wholeness or individuation. Ishmael's vision is not merely a surface view. There in this center where the water is transparent to great depths, Melville offers this description. For suspended in these watery vaults floated the forms of nursing mothers of the whales, and those that by their enormous girth seemed shortly to become mothers. The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent. And as human infants, while suckling, will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast, as if leading two different lives at the time, and while yet drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence. Even so, this the young of these whales, 
seem looking up towards us, but not at us, as if we were but a bit of gulf weed in their newborn sight. Floating on their sides, the mothers also seemed quietly eyeing us. Adding to the subtle observation of well intelligence, Melville now has us peer into the depths of the sea and observe the nursery. Our sight is that of a suckling newborn whale whose gaze is like unto that of a human baby. Alongside Wordsworth's poem, Ode to Intimations of Immortality, Melville would have us perceive a memory of the eternal in the conduct of the very young. In this dreamy state, Melville simultaneously attaches a sense of soul to the whale and symbolically expresses the vision of the depths of the unconscious where resides this sense of self linking us to that which is eternal and transcendent. He concludes this dreamlike venture with his own interpretive words. But even so, amid the tornado's Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve around me, deep down and deep inland, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. The great value of this novel for the psychologist resides in his power to manifest mythical underpinnings that serve to connect the reader to images that are undervalued in Western culture. On a personal note, five years ago I found myself enraptured by the dreamlike episode depicted in Ismail's depiction of the nursery in the deep, and I had no clue why. I can only testify that it enlivened my spirit and spoke to my soul. This is the power of myth and the continued process of what Jung identified as individuation. Thank you.